Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well. So you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Hello, hello, hello. This is Ryan J. Pelton. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast. However you found us, we're really glad that you're here. And our show is dedicated to writing fast, writing often, and writing well. And I have the privilege of interviewing some of the most prolific writers on the planet. Some people you've heard of, some people you haven't, uh, but these writers are an inspiration to us all. And we dig into their process, their mindset. We get into the books they write, their influences, uh, how they're able to crank out so many books and so many words and, and learn what it means to be an author in today's age. And we believe that fast doesn't mean poor quality. And you're going to learn a lot from these interviews. Hopefully you've had a chance to check out a few other episodes. We are on episode number 18. And today we have a great guest named Rick Partlow. And Rick Partlow is a science fiction author. And as I was talking to Rick, one of the themes that, that really came out for me, and maybe you'll notice when you listen, is the idea of endurance hanging in there. Uh, Rick has a, a great story of always wanting to be a writer, uh, spent a lot of his youth writing went through different careers and jobs and family and continues to have a job and a family. But, uh, as he's just continued to crank out the words, continue to write the stories that he wants to write. Uh, I just see a guy who who's hanging in there. And, and I think for the prolific writer and for the aspiring writer, for the veteran writer, it's, it really is about endurance and every book you write, every article you write, every novel, nonfiction work, whatever you write specifically is there's a, there's this thing about endurance is, is just hanging in there because it, they're not all good. They're not all great. They're not all bestsellers. And, and, and for most they're not going to be, uh, but to continue to write, to endure, uh, 
the ups, the downs, that's really the key to success. I think, especially in this creative world of writing and, and Rick is a, the epitome of that. And, and he continues to work hard. He continues to treat his writing, not only as an art, but also as a business. And so because it's a business and because he's trying to uh, make money from it, um, and which is not always bad, but he's also trying to provide for his family and think long-term is that he knows that if it's going to be a business and something that's sustainable is he has to continue to endure. And so he talks about writing every day and just putting those words down, whether they're good or not. And, and so I really had a great time reading, meeting, excuse me, not reading, but meeting Rick Partlow and hearing his story and his experiences and where he's been, where he's at, and he, he's doing well and selling books. And so go check out some of his books and I'll, I'll let you know in the show notes where you can find those you can look them up. And, uh, so, uh, hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to share, uh, as far as me and our publishing company, and we'll have some more things coming down the pipe, but I, I looking forward to, uh, sharing some more inter interviews with you, have some great ones in the queue and, uh, looking forward to actually talking to a woman, uh, recently who's written 94 books. And so that's pretty amazing. And she's selling a ton of them. So, uh, looking forward to that interview. That'll be coming up soon. We've got some more great guest in the queue. One ask that I have is, is if you go over to iTunes, could you leave a review that really helps us out a lot? Um, I was listening to another podcast and he said very candidly, I'm not sure exactly what it does, but I know it helps. And I believe the same thing. Uh, there's a couple of reviews up there and, and people are liking the show, but if you really like the show or even if you don't like the show, leave an honest review and love to keep doing this for you and, and helping people inspire people, encourage people uh, as far as writing and continue to write and, and go ahead. So go over to iTunes. It's really easy. Leave a review. I would really appreciate it. Uh, the prolific writer podcast and, uh, just tell us what you think. And we'd love for you to do that. So, so with that, I'm going to get to Rick Partlow and our interview, and I hope to talk to you guys real soon. <laughs> Never has the story of the old glory needed introduction or induction. Just the passing on of morals from the parents to the children's generation. Well, hey, Rick, uh, good to have you on the show today. I'm here with Rick uh, Partlow, and uh, Rick is a author, uh, science fiction author. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Yeah, definitely. And um, I know it, it was kind of last minute, and I love uh, what I love about the Prolific Writer podcast is we just seem to find these um, gem of authors and great stories and a lot of people that a lot of people haven't really heard of, but um, are selling a lot of books and been writing for a long time and producing a lot of work. And so uh, Rick uh, seems to be one of those guys. And so I'm really glad to have, have you on and we're part of the same writing group. And so um, it'd be great to hear your story and your background and your writing journey and all that good stuff. So so good to have you on. So uh, I was looking through your bio, and I noticed that your father was uh, in the military, World War II pilot. Is that correct? He was the nose gunner on a B-24 bomber in the European theater in World War II. Okay, very cool. Because uh, my grandfather, not my father, um, my father's a pilot also, but uh, my grandfather was a World, World War II test pilot. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so I, I saw that and go, hey, we have a little little things in common. So, um, did you grow up around airplanes and military and all that? 
Well, I grew up wanting to be a pilot because my dad had wanted to be a pilot, actually, but he was colorblind and wound up being a gunner and a, the nose gunner and a bomber. And uh, I was just fascinated with the Air Force and especially with pilot, with the fighter planes, piloting and fighter planes. So I tried to get into the Air Force Academy when I was a teenager, and I found out that I did not have good enough eyesight to be a pilot. So I wound up in the Army. That's interesting. Yeah, my, my father actually has the same story. He he tried out for the Air Force and uh, had the same issues. Um, some other, I forget what, exactly what it was. But um, but yeah, my family's always been around um, uh, airplanes and military and things. And so you ended up in the in the Army. And I always find it interesting, a lot of authors have military backgrounds. And so, so let's talk a little bit about that. How, how much of your kind of writing experience, you know, you talked a little bit about I was reading some of your blog and your bio and things, talking about um, how you know you started writing stories very young, wanted to be a writer. Um, but how has kind of the military uh, experiences, how's that influenced uh, some of your writing? Well, I didn't stay in the military for very long, a couple of years in the National Guard, a couple of years active duty, and then in the reserves for a while. But it was a lot of fun. And it allowed me, and most importantly, I think, to meet a lot of really interesting people and those people definitely influenced my writing um i went i was in um the national guard and in rotc in college back when there were vietnam vets still there training and i got to talk to a lot of them got a lot of their experiences in vietnam i was in during the gulf war the unit i was with did not go over there but i got to talk to a lot of people that did and it, it gave me a lot of different perspectives on combat and the experiences they went through in, in different, very different types of wars and the similarities between them and the pretty much universal experience of the military and combat, the things that tri that uh, carry over from one war to the other. Yeah, I think it's an interesting conversation when you think about kind of your experiences and the people you meet and, you know, what regardless of what job you have, if you're a plumber in the military or a lawyer, it doesn't matter. Um, but we find our these interesting people that they find themselves in our stories and you know they're usually not verbatim characters but you know they're influencer or they're a friend you had or you know a guy that you met here or there and and somehow they they kind of weave their their um their selves into our stories and so talk a little bit about kind of your influences as far as sci-fi goes because uh, i read that you know obviously you've been influenced by sci-fi as a sci-fi reader as a kid and um, i think you, you you mentioned heinlein somewhere um, oh yeah, Heinlein was probably the second science fiction book I ever wrote, ever read was um, "Has Spacesuit Will Travel." Mm -hmm. I got that out of the local library in Brandon, Florida, and I must have checked it out a hundred times. Hmm. I still remember the cover with the uh, purple spacesuit. But uh, the very first science fiction book I think I read was um, "Secret of the Marauder Satellite" by Ted White. Okay. which very heavily influenced me. It was written in the early 70s, and it made some assumptions about what happened in the space race. It didn't turn out to occur, but uh, it, it influenced me just in the style of writing, the way that it got inside the character's head. And then I went from there to Heinlein, and I read all of Heinlein's juveniles over and over and over again, well into my teens. And somewhere in my teens, late teens, I... Uh, discovered uh, neuromancer William Gibson his his uh, cyberpunk novels mm -hmm. 
And I think the whole combination of the different subgenres of science fiction sort of really made an impact on me, and I, I wanted to write something that kind of mixed them, and uh, nobody else was writing it. I wanted to read it, so I decided I had to write it. Is that usually the way it goes? You know, if you write the book that you want to read? Yeah, definitely. So, and I came up with that idea somewhere in the late eight, late 1980s in college, actually. Wow. So, so take us back a little bit. So, um, let's talk about your family a little bit. Is, is there uh, were they readers? Were, were they, you know, how did you kind of get into reading novels, you know, sci-fi, thinking about writing? Was there, uh, you know, creativity in your home, or what was your background like? Well, my father, who was actually a Baptist preacher, and he was, he was, he read a lot. I mean, there was hundreds of books in our house, not science fiction, but he was reading constantly, and I think that rubbed off on me. He also wrote, he wrote books about religion, and uh, I guess it just made it normal for me, the idea that normal people could write books. He never got any of his published on a large scale. He had them published locally for use in different churches, but um, I just started writing at a young age, started writing stories, and then I actually wrote my first novel at uh, about age 14, which was horrible, (laughs) (laughs) which I I guess most first novels are. Sure. So, um, was there a moment, or, um, you know, you write your first one, obviously it's not that good, and you keep writing, um, but... Was there kind of a moment where you, where you thought to yourself, you know, I, I think I can do this, or, or I really enjoy this, or, you know, maybe there's a future in this? Um, a, a, anything that kind of comes to mind when you think about that? Well, I first thought about doing it for a living, for money, when I was in my uh, late 20s. And I had two novels that wound up being Birthright and Duty on a Planet that I had partially completed while I was in the Army. And I just sat down on a computer, which really helped me to actually finish them, because previous to that, I was a horrible typist, and I wrote longhand in a notebook. So I I finally got on a computer and finished those novels, and I got a literary agent, a pretty good one, actually. Um, Unfortunately, I kind of had bad timing with respect to getting into the genre, because this being the mid-'90s, it was a hard time to break in as a, you know, as a new writer. And she tried really hard, but uh, after a little while, I kind of got discouraged, you know, with the idea, and uh, our contract lapsed, and I pretty much put the uh, novels in a digital dustbin and uh, gave up on writing, really, for a few years. Hmm. And then the thing that got got me going after that was I kept having people telling me, you know, there's a lot of people self-publishing on Amazon's eBooks for Kindle, which I never, I had never read an eBook. I was, I was like, I like paper books. I like something physical I can hold. I was very skeptical. And I finally decided, you know, it would be nice if somebody besides my immediate family and friends actually read one of these books. <laughs> <laughs> so, I probably made every mistake in the book, not knowing at all what I was doing. I slapped some 
really bad homemade covers on them, put them on Amazon for 99 cents a piece, the two of them. Mm-hmm. Figured maybe, you know, a half dozen people would, would read them, but at least I tried. And they had a pretty successful run the first year, which convinced me that I needed to keep writing. And at first I wrote, I don't want to say as a hobby, but pretty much just as a sideline. And I took forever to write. I look back and I'm like, how could I take that long to write? It took me over a year to write the first sequel. Mm -hmm. And then another year to write the second sequel. And things started to speed up after that. But it's only been in the last year or so that I really started to look at writing as a job and not as a hobby, which is very diff- a very different approach when it comes to setting goals and, as your podcast is titled, being a prolific writer. Mm-hmm. So, so what's the so talk us through the shift. So, um, you know, it sounds like a big gap. So you had you know ninety five, ninety six. You had a couple novels that were like full length novels, literary agent. And then fast forward to when was the the first time you actually uh, self-published those books? I first self-published those books in 2011. Oh, wow. The end of July. So it was a very big gap. And they, I had not done, I I had some, I have a hard drive full of maybe 20 and 30 page first few chapters of novels that I never got down to writing at that time because... I guess I was just discouraged at the thought that they would ever get read by anybody else. So I never really sat down and worked hard at it until I had the incentive of knowing that there were actually people out there who wanted to read something I wrote. Mm-hmm. So let's talk that. So 2011, you put the couple books up there, um, gets a little bit of traction. And then, so we're in your head, were you thinking, okay, another sequel to those ones? Um, when did you Yeah, start? I, I had people... I had people ask me about a sequel to uh, Duty on a Planet, which is a military science fiction novel. The other one, Birthright, was more space opera mixed with cyberpunk and adventure and aliens. Duty on a Planet was more down-to-earth military science fiction. And I could only, at the time, only concentrate on one at a time. So I wrote two sequels to Duty on a Planet. And these are pretty much doorstopper books. I mean, the, the first sequel was 189,000 words. Oh, wow. So, and I am the type of person, and I still do this, that I edit as I go. Mm-hmm. I don't, like, speed through a first a first draft and then re-edit. I know it's probably the wrong thing to do, but at this point, it'd be really hard for me to, to do it any other way. Mm-hmm. So I edited as I went. So at least after the 14th months, the book was ready to go. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I got that one done, and I actually wrote the second novel intending for that sequel to finish out the story. And I got to the end of it, and I'm like, you know, I'm at 180,000 words, and they haven't invaded the bad guy's homeworld yet. <laughs> I'm going to have a 250,000-word novel if I keep this up. I'm going to have to write a third book. And I, I, the idea, I kind of resented the the notion that every epic fiction genre fiction had to be a trilogy and I was going to finish it up in two I'm like oh crap I've got to write a trilogy now 
So, so I, uh, I, went to, I went to work on the third one. That took a little less time. It was another big book. And uh, after that, I, I started writing sequels to uh, Birthright. So uh, typical sci-fi, I don't read a ton of sci-fi, but um, is that fairly long for a sci-fi book, like 180, 190? And that sounds like, you know, Lord of the Rings it is. length. It, it is. It is an epic fantasy length. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's impossibly long. I mean, I've read science fiction books that are that long, but most of the military science fiction, especially theories that I read, are much shorter than that, about a half that length. Mm-hmm. So what has been um, reader feedback on length? Has there been any comments about that? or is it? I mean, they're obviously, you know, people read them, so it's not that... Well, the, pe- the people who are fans of that series, uh, they appreciated it. They felt like they really got their money's worth out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for me, it's the less popular of the two series that I've written. Mm-hmm. I mean, it hasn't been unpopular. I've sold enough of them, but... The the uh, other series, birth the birthright novels have been much more popular, much more better sellers, and which it kind of irks me on on one level because I really really like the duty honor planet characters and the story, and I feel it's my best writing. But you know you can't tell people what they like, so <laughs> sure. So let's let's uh, let's dig a little deeper into. I, I liked what you were saying about there's kind of a shift that happened from kind of hobbyist to this is a job, and uh, let, let's talk about that. So <clears throat> so talk go back a little bit. You, you published a couple books, 2011. Um, what was kind of your life like at that point? Um, you know, when were you fitting in writing? You know, you're obviously you know you keep putting out books, but um, you know what was kind of the, the trajectory at that point? I, at that point, I was not treating it like a job. It was more of a, a sideline of, I mean, I made some money out, so it wasn't really a hobby, but it wasn't, it wasn't a job. It was something that I thought was just cool, mm-hmm. like an activity that made money. Uh, like, I'm a photographer. I've made a little bit of money at it, but mostly I do it because I find it, you know, fun to do. Mm-hmm. And this, that was what writing was like at the time. It was, it was more along those lines. So I wrote when the inspiration struck me, uh, when I didn't have anything else to do, I did not have any word count goals. I did not have any, you know, deadline for when I would finish the book. I just wrote when I felt like it. Mm-hmm. And it still took, uh, it still took up a long time just thinking about it. Cause that's a long book and the, the plot twist came hard and heavy and they weren't always what I intended. Sure. But, uh, I uh, I guess when I really started thinking about it as a job was when I finished the second book in the Birthright trilogy. I At that point, I decided I've got to write more than one book a year if I plan to make money at this, because that's what I was averaging. And that's I was like, this is a hobby. If I want to make money, if I want this to be a career, which I'd always dreamed about, then I had to really buckle down and get to work. And so when you when you talk about making the transition, it's kind of like Stephen Pressfield talks about, you know, going pro. And, and he says, you know, the difference between amateurs and pros really at, at its core is, is pros just write a lot more. <laughs> and Exactly. Know, amateurs talk about writing. They read about writing. They outline. They do all this stuff, but they don't actually sit in the chair and actually crank out words. Um, 
And so what, what's kind of, how, how's your process changed as far as producing more words, trying to get out more books per year? What, what's kind of changed along, along the road? Well, I've set word goals per day. I set time limits on books. I basically don't allow myself to get sidetracked and distracted by other things until I've hit that word goal. And it's it's difficult. I mean, I still work a full-time job, and I find myself, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night, and I have to get up at 5.30, but I'm still sitting there, you know, tapping away at the keyboard trying to get to the 2,000 words that I have so, to fit in. <laughs> so is that is that your goal right now, 2,000 a, a day or 2,000 uh, a minimum session? Two, or? Minim, minimum 2,000 words a day. I try to get to 3,000 when I can, but uh, with a job and a daughter who's in uh, competitive soccer and, you know, family, just when I can. Sure, sure. I think it's a, a great part of your story because I, I think most people that write, I mean, aren't they're not full-time writers. I mean, most aren't. And um, and yet, what I love about this show um, is not because I host it, but because of the great people that come on and they, they just show you that you can still you know, produce books and write books with families, with competitive soccer, with, you know, a day job and, and still crank out words. And, you know, I, I think it's some of my favorite authors, like, you know, one was C.S. Lewis. And I mean, he, he never was a full-time writer. I don't think people realize that he actually was a you know full-time professor and he wrote fiction and nonfiction as a hobby. And, and yeah, you know, wrote tons and tons and tons of books and articles and, you know, uh, and you know, probably because they didn't have Netflix, that was probably part of it. But um, <laughs> but you know, well, TV, I'll tell you, that's one of yeah. the things I've had to sacrifice is watching movies, TV shows. Sure. And I, I think that's important. I mean, you talk about the shift from hobbyist to professional, or hobbyist to a job, and yeah, you have to make some sacrifices. You have to you know shut off social media and TV and movies and. Um, you know, what I, I'm hearing a lot of writers talking about how they kind of let those things be kind of a, a reward. You know, if I hit those 2,000 words, I can watch the movie or I can binge on whatever show or whatever. Rather than before it was like, well, I'll just watch the show and then maybe I'll fix in my writing, but that never happens. <laughs> so, exactly. Right. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been tough. It's been an adjustment. I feel like I'm really settling into it now. It's it's not as big of an effort as it used to be, and now I'm trying to get more words in because I feel like it is less of an effort and I'm getting more used to making myself sit down and write rather than sit there and ruminate ideas through my head. Mm-hmm. So, so talk a little bit about the evolution of your process. Um, I, I read on your blog you were talking about how you were experimenting with you know, outlining a book versus you know, pantsing a book. Um, talk a little bit where you're at now as far as are you are you outlining books now or are you just still kind of pantsing or is it just project to project where are you at on that I am definitely outlining I am not as I, I hear some authors in podcasts like this who are heavily outline their books down to each beat I've heard of authors who use like wheels for plot, plotting with a uh, with a clock set up uh, I'm not quite at that level yet i but I do sit down for the last three or four books. I've sat down. I've outlined every chapter down to the beats in the chapter. And uh, I've pretty much followed them. 
and it's totally the opposite of what I used to be. I used to be in the, every single one of those huge, gigantic duty on our planet books. I pants my way through them, uh, only outlining as far as perhaps the next two chapters. And I have to say, I mean, just on a personal level, it was more fun to pants because mm-hmm. I felt as if I was reading the book as much as I was writing it. Mm-hmm. Because if you come up with really good characters, you get to the point where you're like, man, I wonder what they're going to do next as you're writing it. And um, I felt that way through the Duty Honor Planet series. And with the Birthright series so far, it, 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 la- it lost some of that, you know, sense of wonder, perhaps, that the other ones had. But it's made a lot more money, so there's always that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that strange how that works? I mean, I, I heard Lee Child in an interview talk about how he just thought, you know, people that outlined it was so boring and he would never be a writer if he just had to write everything out. You know, some people say, I, I know how the book's going to end. I, I write the end of the book first, you know, that kind of stuff. And he said, you know, that's like, or I think Stephen King actually said that. It's it's like eating your, you know, cake first. He's like, I don't know, I don't know how people do it. But, you know, there, I, I think there's some wisdom in that. And I think it's it's interesting as I've interviewed, you know, dozens of people now that, that it's, no one has has the right answer i mean it's kind of what works for you um you know some swear by outlining detailed outlining i had libby hawker on here and she's you know the outline queen wrote a book about it and you know others that fly by the seat of their pants can't do it any other way wouldn't do it any other way and you know they all are pretty successful i mean i don't think one's better than the other but um, i think i think we all in a sense all outline i mean i think we have ideas i think we have characters in a place in a setting and it, regardless if you put it on paper i think we're all kind of thinking about things it's not like we just come totally cold to the page um, exactly we, I, mean, I even even when i was deep into seat of my panting the way through the book i would still sit down with a sheet of paper and, and just jot down ideas for the next chapter or two mm-hmm. and uh sometimes those ideas just went totally out the window but I did try. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think my hard thing, I don't outline much, but I, I think my hard thing is when I outline, I, I realize I never use the outline, so it always feels like it's a waste of time. Like, I'll I'll have an idea, and then I come to it, and I'm like, ah, I'm going to go somewhere else. It's kind of like the characters, you know, they won't let you. You know, they, they're telling you, oh, no, exactly. you, you have to go over here. You can't do that. I think that's the fun part of writing. It, it is. It, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, as I was saying in the, the first trilogy, I had, in the, in the third book of that trilogy, I started out with a totally different idea of how he's going to end it and a totally different idea of who the main villain would be in it. And as I got about a third of the way to the book, I'm like, this guy's behind everything. He's the bad guy. I'm like, no, that can't be. Oh, it makes sense. It all fits together. It looks like I planned it from the very beginning, and I just came up with it about halfway through the book. <laughs> right. I love that. And I, I think that's, you know, Dean Wesley Smith talks about that, the you know subconscious mind, that we're all born storytellers, and sometimes we just have to let that subconscious, you know, that it knows what it's doing, and it, and it surprises us, and it, and it, you know, twists and turns, and you go, where did that come from? But, I mean, it works. And uh, that, I think that's really thrilling when that happens. It was so, a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. The latest, the latest book, not the latest, but the next to the latest book that I wrote, it's called Glory Boy. And really, it's been my most successful book to date. 
And it surprised the heck out of me because when I wrote it, I had finished the Birthright trilogy and I had Glory Boy partially plotted, partially written, like a couple of chapters, since the late 1980s. That was the first science fiction book that I had plotted in college. And I never wrote it because I looked at it and it was it was the story of the main character of the Birthright Trilogy, his experiences in this war. And I decided that his experiences after the war in like an intrigue, political thriller, I decided that was more interesting. So I had finished that trilogy and I'm like, you know, I've got this, I might as well finish writing it. So I plotted it out down to the last detail because I had it all figured out in my head for years. And I just wrote it all down and it came really easy. I'm like, oh, well, this is an interesting little backstory. Maybe people who like this trilogy be interested in it. It has sold more than any of my other books. And I'm like, really? <laughs> wow. Because it, it seemed like it was, it seemed like it was laid out in the original trilogy. Like there was, it wasn't as fun to write. It was just something that came out automatically, and there you go. So, is Glory Boy is that kind of a like a pre kind of a prequel to the other it, series? It is. It's a prequel, but it's also a standalone military science fiction story. Okay which is what I marketed as when I, when I released it, because I didn't want people to look at this and say, oh, that's a prequel, I mean, to this other series, so i got to read that series, so I'm not going to buy this. So I made it. I wrote it, and I marketed it as a standalone science fiction, military science fiction story, and I figured at the end of the book, in the back matter, I'll put, if you like these characters, there's a whole trilogy written with everybody in them. And that was probably the best idea I ever had. <laughs> So, so talk a little bit about your evolution as far as um, words. Like, are your newer books are they still 180,000 words, or are they shorter? Kind of what? Where are they at on that? Well, the uh, all of the birthright books are shorter than the Duty Honor Planet books. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all been around 100,000 words, 100 to 120. Uh, Boy Boy was also 120. My last book that I wrote is actually the shortest one I've ever written was 95,000 words. So I think I'm getting a little shorter uh, as I go along. I don't know if maybe I had these epic stories in my head that I had to get out or if I'm just getting less patient as I get older. <laughs> so, but, so uh, talk, yeah, talk a little bit about your, um, you know, that's a lot of words. So you said to try to do 2,000 words a day. Um, what's kind of your time frame? Do you have? You said you you set even a, a date, uh, kind of a deadline. What's kind of your timeline for each book? Uh, right now, I am trying. I am trying to get uh, at least four books out this year, and uh, trying to write, finish them in about two months each, um, including editing. So I'm probably going to get the four books I think unless I just totally run out of ideas and I'm going to get all four books written and I'm leaving myself a few like two week gaps in there to take time off from writing vacations so, or just whatever yeah I'm planning on I'm, I'm working on the sequel to my latest book right now and it's on on pace to be done 
around the end of April, and I have a two-week vacation at the beginning of May, so it'll work out fine. <laughs> so, so talk a little about a little a little more deeper on your process. So you you said you write um, straight through, and then you kind of edit as you go. So you probably have a pretty clean you know manuscript by the time you get to the end. So. When do you actually send it off to an editor or whoever edits or looks at your books? And then how does that work after that? I do not have a professional editor, and I probably should at this point. But up till now, it's been prohibitively expensive. Because, mm-hmm. as I said before, Glory Boy, I was, I was doing okay, but I wasn't making you know, a few thousand dollars a month. And I didn't really have the money to throw at something that I didn't think was going to have that big of a return. So I had beta readers go through it and find the typos for me. Any uh, any errors in uh, you know storyline like uh, contradictions, mm-hmm. and I read it myself several times. But I never really had a professional editor before that. Um, so the process usually takes a couple of weeks between letting letting the beta readers have it and and while they're doing it, I go through it myself. I let family members read it too. I just go through it as much as I can to find every typo, grammar, grammatical error. I'm pretty good about not having uh, story errors. I I know some people have like uh, encyclopedias of their series, you know, that they have written down to keep track of everything. But so far, knock on wood, I've been pretty good at keeping things like that straight. And um, it usually, like I said, takes me about two weeks to get a book ready to publish after I finish it. Do you use any, um, you know, software or anything just for extra proofreading or picking up typos or, you know, Grammarly or ProWritingAid or any of those? No, I have not tried those yet. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good at picking up gram- grammatical errors. I've always had, since I think it's because I was such a prolific reader as a kid, I've always had kind of a natural talent for grammar. I, I was a kid who uh, proofread other people's papers in college, you know. Sure. And um, I've never had a problem with that. Uh, the only the only things that bug me are, are uh, typos. I'm really not a great typist even now. I mean, I can I can type faster, but uh, if I was typing on a typewriter like the old timey authors, I'd be buying whiteout by the gallon. <laughs> so how about? Um as far as your production as well. So beta readers, you know, you go through it a bunch of times. Um, and then how about like formatting covers, uh, putting the book actually together? How, what's your process for that? Formatting, I, pr- I pretty much have down myself. Um, it took some trial and error. As I said, the first two books I put out, I didn't do a very good job of any of that stuff. Um, and pretty much going back and fixing those two books taught me a lot of what I needed to know about formatting. As far as covers go, until recently, I have been very cheap when it came to covers. I've been, um, you know, using stock illustrations. And I'm, I'm a, as I said, I'm a photographer. So I have a, I'm a pretty good hand at the Adobe Photoshop Creative Suite. And I'm able to... Uh, engineer some some uh, covers on my own they aren't my strongest point and now that i've had more success and have a little more money coming in i'm going to invest more of it and probably get some professional covers done 
but uh, up till now, I've, I've been the most I've spent on a cover is twelve dollars from uh, iStock Photography Illustrations. Wow. Yeah, they're not bad. I can tell they've they've gotten better. And uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting conversation. I was just interviewing someone earlier today about you know when they started, they just didn't have you know obviously there was no money coming in, and so you know editing had to be done cheaply and formatting and covers and. You know, a lot of people say, you know, go back and fix those things later, you know, when you have a little money coming in. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I look at your sales and I, I see, you know, they're, they're still selling. It's not that it's a total hindrance. I don't think people are going, oh, the cover, you know, I'm not going to look at it. But it's obviously, you know, well-written stories. And, um, and yeah, you're growing and doing doing well. So it, it is that weird thing, you know. It's it, I know everyone says, you know, well, I've seen some just killer covers and you know they probably spent thousands on them and they don't sell anything so it's like you know <laughs> or, they, or they spend you know i've heard people spending five thousand dollars on a book you know editing and covers and all that and it's like they don't ever make that money back you know it's that that blows my mind when i hear that too i i just can't i mean up till now up up until recently i just couldn't imagine investing more than more into a book than you you could expect to get back in a year right and then, you know, they're, they're very successful people, obviously, make that that quickly. I mean, the Michael Anderleys of the world. But not a, not most most self-published authors aren't going to make that much money, to be honest. I was just looking at the, uh, the earnings statement for uh, writers that came out recently, and I think the median that people make self-publishing is about $17,000 a year. And with that kind of uh, return, I just can't imagine investing five thousand dollars in a book. Sure, especially not at the beginning. I mean, that's I think that's what's crazy. I mean, because you know, you think of bestsellers. I mean, you, I mean, even bestseller lists. I mean, e even editors and agents. I mean, some of them go. We had no idea this was going to be a bestseller. I mean, and, and so think of all the money that gets invested and then it, it doesn't do anything. And and people just don't know. Reading and books are so subjective. It's um, what people like, what what's hot, what's not. I mean, it, it's just very interesting. Um, yeah, I'd definitely stay on the for those listening, stay on the lower end until you know that you have a really hit series or you know. Um, oh yeah, that's that would be my advice. I mean, I feel like a veteran now after spending six years in this, and I, which is kind of odd because. Most in the old days for traditionally published writers, you think of somebody who's been doing this for 20 or 30 years as being a veteran. But as fast as things move in the Kindle public in ebook publishing, it's six years. I feel like I've been around longer than most of the people I'm reading. Right. But if I if I could give them any advice, is don't shovel a whole bunch of money into a book and think it's going to make it a a bestseller and make you a bunch of money. Uh, you need to write a good book first. I've seen lots of books with great covers and great marketing, and the people are wondering, why isn't my book selling? And then you look at the book and you're like, because it's not really a good book. It's painful and nobody wants to tell them that, but uh, that's what it comes down to. You, you, you can pay all the money you want for editing and covers, but you've got to have a good idea. and You've got to be able to tell a good story. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's it. So... So talk a little bit about, do you have any kind of, you know, marketing strategy, email list, uh, what's been effective for you kind of getting the word out about your, your books? Well, 
like, like many authors, I've tried getting a book bub many, many times and, and not gotten one yet. But I've, I've tried several other uh, services for uh, marketing, such as Book Barbarian, Fussy Librarian, uh, Free Booksy and Bargain Booksy. Whenever I have a, a new book out or when I'm running a promotion, I'll run ads on all of those. And I found that that's, that's worked pretty well. I mean, not as good as BookBub, obviously, but then again, these are a lot cheaper as well. Sure. The prior, prior to um, the success I've had recently, I did not run, I did not put too much money into, uh, into marketing. And mostly what I tried to do was word of mouth, uh, you know, just pass the word along to people that are interested in this sort of thing. There's, there's message forums that I frequented where people who are into military science fiction would post. And I would just mention, Hey, you know, I got a book. I would, you don't try to push it on it because you don't want to be obnoxious. But when people are discussing, did you ever try to write a book? I'm like, Oh yeah, I got a book out here. And things like that get around a lot more than you'd think. I, I probably had my initial success with birthright and duty on our planet because of message forms like that. Just people getting curious and passing the word along. And I think the fact they were both 99 cent at the time helped. Mm-hmm. Do, you have so email, do you have an email list? You know, I do not. I, uh, I, I, I keep getting that advice to get an email list, and I probably really should do it. And every time I sit down and start thinking about it, I run into two problems. One, I don't want to just push my book on people with every email. And so I really wouldn't know what to talk about in an email list mm-hmm. that I sent out that, that frequently. And the second problem is I am on a few email lists that I got onto by getting free books. And I know for myself I never read them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I keep feeling like I can, I can spend a lot of time and effort and money in, into getting a large email list. Am I really going to get a huge return from it? People mm-hmm. keep telling me they're necessary and they're probably right because it's people that are more successful than me. But uh, I just have not gotten to it yet. It's one of the things that, as I move along, I, I'm right about at the point where I'm ready to go full-time at this. And as I put more time and effort into marketing, which I'll have time for, I probably will, will do that, but I do not have one as yet. Well, and I think you're proving the point that, you know, Again, there's no rhyme or reason. I mean, I've I've heard this over and again. You know, some swear by the email list. That's you know the thing that's made their career, and others I don't have one and don't care. Um, <laughs> you know, I I just talked to a, a woman who writes you know two novels a month, and you know doesn't have an email list, doesn't do anything on social media, just writes the next book, and you know she's making like six figures a month, and you know <laughs> and it's it's insane. So. Again, I think, you know, the lesson is do what works for you and, and there's no magic bullet and, you know, write the next book, write a good book. And it sounds like you're doing a little bit of that and, you know, do an ad here or there. But, but again, it's word of mouth. It's, it's just being out there. And it's, it's you have an interesting story because I think, you know, you, talk, you jokingly talked about, you know, six years, I'm the, you know, grizzled veteran. Um, but, you know, the reality is in six years, I, you know, I started writing nonfiction about six years ago and, I mean, there's so many people that have come and gone, you know, big, 
big time sellers, people that are selling tons of books, fiction and nonfiction, and they're nowhere to be found anymore. Um, and, and I think the, the ones that will make it actually are the ones that stick around and just keep cranking out work and telling people about it and, you know, they're excited about it. And I, I don't think it's a magic pill, <laughs> you know. Um, if I can if I can go off on a tangent just briefly. Yeah, please. Can I say that it's, as a reader more than a writer, that I am in love with the whole rise of self-publishing, independent publishing, because as a reader who enjoys kind of, I guess it's old-fashioned now, military science fiction, space opera, that kind of thing, there's just not that much out there. Mm-hmm. You go into a Barnes & Noble, into the science fiction section, and you and you go into the books that are actually science fiction, space opera, military science fiction, and there's a lot of books by the same authors. Right. There's like three or four big name authors, and I mean, and I love some of those guys, and I read their stuff, but a traditionally published author takes how long to get a book out? No. You you get the, you get one book out, it may be two years before the next one comes out. Sure. And. I don't blame them. That's not that's not their doing. It's just the way the system works. But I've always been a very prolific reader, and to have to wait that long in between finding books that I like to read, I used to haunt the used bookstores just to try to find things that were written that I didn't know about mm-hmm. in the day before the internet. And having hundreds of thousands of books available as ebooks fairly cheap is it's close to my idea of heaven when I was like a teenager and reading science fiction. Oh sure. Yeah, and that's you know, it's funny there's these stories, you know, Stephen King, you know, uses a pen you know, starts a pen name because his publisher's too slow and he's got all these you know, he writes a book every quarter and he's just waiting and waiting and waiting for his books to come out, so he's like, Oh, I start a pen name and start writing, you know, new stuff. Um uh, who's the other guy, the other whole writer, uh, wrote Stephen King's era, um, uh, I forget his name, um, anyway, the same thing, you know, he, he, he <laughs> starts a pen name just because he's, he's got all these stories he wants to tell, but, you know, it takes 18 months to two years before a book to be published through traditional publishing, but I agree, I think it's exciting times, I think, you know, living in a Netflix binging era, I mean, that's what people are looking for, um, Exactly. Things they can can binge on, you know, at their own pace, and it's not going to break the bank either. And um, I, I mean, I love ebooks. It, it's it's amazing how and you discover. I mean, it sounds like you're you're telling my story too. You discover some great writers too, um, like yourself. I got new books to read, you know, and and you know, people I interview, I'm like, I've never heard of you, but now now I got all these books. You know, I got 20 books I got to read. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with Kindle Unlimited, it's great. Yeah, I uh, I. I used to think I would never read ebooks, uh, and then, you know, you get a Kindle app on your smartphone, and you're sitting in the doctor's office waiting for an appointment, or you're sitting in car line waiting to pick up your kid, and you have a hundred books sitting there on your phone that you can read. Right, it's so crazy. It's hard to fathom. You know, I still remember, you know, bringing my paperbacks, you know, wherever I went. You know, yeah. Oh doc- yeah, exactly. Doctors and all yeah. that. <laughs> now it's like, huh? Yeah, I got fifty books to choose from. What do I want to read now? You know. Well, when you're when you're on a flight to another city and you're going to be there a week or two weeks and trying to cram paperbacks into your carry-on. Right, right, great. The good old days. The good old <laughs> days, yeah. 
Well, hey, Rick, um, just a couple more questions as we kind of wrap up our time. I want to be sensitive to your time, too. Um, I know you're a little bit later than me. So um, one question I have, and I, I'm a big, you know, we've talked a lot about process and specific ways that you write, and, and you know, that's interesting. But, but I'm also interested, and I, I think for me and our audience is more interested, too, is it's just kind of below the surface, kind of your motivations of why do you keep writing? What keeps you going? Um, you know, six years in, you got a full-time job, you have a family, and you keep writing and loving it, and, you know, 2,000 words a day. What what kind of below the surface just keeps you going? I still think deep down it's that there's not enough books out that I would I would want to read that I feel like I have to write them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like if I wasn't getting paid for it, if I wasn't, I mean, if I, people were reading it but I wasn't getting paid as much, I would still write. But I think I would probably be pantsing it and I would probably be taking a year, year and a half to write a book like I was before. Uh, what makes me write quickly and prolifically is to be crass money. <laughs> uh, as I get older, that's more important, you know, trying to make a future for the kids. Okay. So I've, I've written the books, the epic books that I wanted to read, the ones that were, I guess, trying to work their way out for all these years. And I, w- I still want to write books that I'd like to read, but I just feel like I have to be more efficient about it, have a better process, be able to write faster, and frankly, write a little bit shorter, maybe make it two books instead of 189,000 word book. Sure. And maybe that's a little bit uh, crass and commercial of me, but at some point, you know, you have to think about... Uh, the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's important. I think you have to you have to take the art and the business, you know, into your writing room and and say, well, hey, if I'm going to be full time and I'm going to do this as a living, you know, you got to treat it as a business too. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. I interviewed a guy, Jake Bible. I don't know if you ever read his stuff, but you know, he writes a novel a month, and he's like, I do because I have to make a living. This is what I do. This is the only thing I do. And so it can't, you know, he writes, writes Pulp Fiction, he writes fast, but he writes good stories and, you know, he, he's on to the next one. <laughs> and, you know, and I think what I'm hearing too from a lot of authors is you can't fall in love with your stories too much. Um, as great as they are, you, you really have to kind of let them go out into the wild and go on to the next thing. Because, <laughs> you know, we all have friends, you know, they've been working on that book for 12 years and they're still talking about it and how great it is. And, you know, one day I'll get it done and... And yet, you know, they could have written, you know, 15 more stories. Um, well, I'll tell you, the one thing that having an agent and not being published did for me that I, that was incredibly valuable, and I'll always be grateful for it, is she teamed me up with some of the toughest and most brutal editors <laughs> that I had ever talked to. And they were the ones who convinced me of that, not falling in love with any part of the story. Mm-hmm. Because they, they made me cut the heck out of my books um, <laughs> back when they were trying to get them published. Because, you know, there's a, there's a difference between a book that you're going to send out as a first-time writer trying to get the attention of a publisher and one that you can get away with writing when you're successful. Oh, sure. Um, and I, at this point, I feel like I learned that lesson well enough that I try not to fall in love with any particular aspect of a story although i can't help falling in love with some characters sure 
So what would be the aspiring prolific writer listening uh, today? What would be one piece of advice you would give them as they're maybe starting out or maybe they've been writing for a long time? What are some things that you've learned along the way that you say, you know, this is really important for, for writing? I would say that if you plan to do this as a career or even as a profitable sideline, then you need to treat it as a business. You need to treat it as a job, something you do for a living, something where you make time every day and it's not, oh, when I feel like it or when the muse strikes. When you, you sit down every day and you write a certain number of words, start out whatever you can, but eventually work your way up because if you sit there staring at a computer screen for an hour, that's not working. If you were at a job where you got paid and you sat at a computer screen and did nothing for an hour, they would fire you. If you want to do this as a job, you have to actually put the words on the screen, even if you think they suck. Put something on the screen. You can come back later and fix them if you have to. But the more you put those words down, the better you will get at it. Don't be afraid to write something you think is horrible because you can always come back and fix it or you can always toss it out. But if you don't write anything, then you'll never get to the point where you can actually be a successful writer. Well, Rick, I think that's great advice. Um, you know, butt in the chair. That's that's what it is. And I think that, that separates, you know, you talked about earlier that the pro versus the amateur is, you know, really it's those who write and those who don't. Those who write and those who talk about writing or want to write but, but actually don't, you know. Well, I, down, I, understand the, I understand the motivation because I, I was there. I was st- sitting at the, staring at the screen thinking, no, that's not good enough. I'm not going to write that down. Mm-hmm. But you, if you do that, then you'll never get to the ones that are good enough. You'll never go back and say, oh, this is how I should have written it because you, you'll just sit there stuck at that one point. So tell our audience where they can find you and find your books, and also what are you uh, what are you working on? What do you got coming out? What can you tell us about? Okay, well my books are you can do an author search for me in Amazon under Rick Partlow, P A R T L O W. I have a Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com backslash Duty Honor Planet, and I do have an a uh, author blog which I also need to work on putting more money into, but right now is a WordPress author blog, which is uh, <coughs> wordpress.com backslash Rick Partlow. Well, great. And, uh, yeah, go check out and his the, books. Yep. Go ahead. The, latest book that I, the latest book that I've released is a uh, military science fiction novel. It's set in the Birthright Universe, at the same time as Glory Boy during the war that happened, but it's about separate characters. It's called Recon, A Ward of the Knife, and I'm currently working on the sequel to that, which is yet untitled. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds great. Well, hey, Rick, this has been a, a real pleasure meeting you, hearing your story, and I know this conversation is going to help a lot of uh, writers, and uh, keep on cranking out the words, and uh, thank you for the time. Thank you for having me, Ryan. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for stopping by the Prolific Writer Podcast. Please leave a review on iTunes so we can help more writers share their stories with the world. And head over to rockhousepublishing.com 
for books, resources and other writing and publishing tips. See you next time.